What a wonderful, what a wonderful morning of worship today. And my heart's been stirred and warmed, and I trust that yours has as well. I invite you to open your Bible, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. We're in 1 Corinthians, and we're chapter number 10. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church in Corinth. He's writing to encourage them in their faith and their walk with God. He gives them instruction, and that instruction has been kept for us to help us in our Christian walk and in our Christian life. And so today, I encourage you to find with me the first, the, the passage, 1 Corinthians, and uh, we're in chapter number 10 today, and we're going to focus on verses 12 to 13. You'll need your Bible today because we're going to look at a lot of different texts of Scripture and a greater a number of texts that are found, also uh, verses that are found within chapter number 10. And so if you'll look with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll begin with verse number 12. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way out that you may be able to bear it. Amen. Today's message is entitled, Overcoming Temptation. We do have an adversary, don't we? And Jay referred to it a moment ago when we read Psalm 6 and prayed through it together. And indeed, we do have an adversary, the devil, who roar, roams around like a, and roars like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But we know that we have an advocate, and that advocate is much stronger than that adversary. And that's Jesus Christ, our Savior. We live in a world where there's difficulties and trials and temptations and hardships and in the midst of it God doesn't leave us alone I love watching sports uh, different sports on TV and we're avid Cardinals fan it's been a rough year to say the least I don't know why we still watch the games I think we're a gluttons for punishment or something I like it the college football has finally arrived I love watching college football. It's so much fun and enthusiasm and all. And really all of the sports world, not just college football, has been taken by the story that's taking place in Colorado. University of Colorado, you know, is uh, notoriously bad in football. Last year they won one game, lost 11 games. But they hired a new coach. He's a Hall of Fame uh, NFL player, Major League Baseball player. There's only one quite one like him. And uh, his name is Deion Sanders, if you're not a football fan or if you've not been watching the news. And Deion Sanders is pretty brash and he's got a lot of flair and he's full of himself often. And so, uh, and yet he's, a, he's known as Neon Deion or Primetime or he's an NFL Hall of Fame player. He choked 
he coached Little League football and his kids' football. And then he was, on a, and he was on commercials and TV and did commentary on sports. And Jackson State, a historic black college, hired him to be their head coach. And he coached there, and he, his sons were playing for him as well as some of uh, others. And then he went to Colorado and flipped that whole team over and brought in a whole bunch of new coaching staff and players. And they've won three games in a row, and everybody's watching Coach Prime, Coach Prime Time, and the Colorado game. It was on last night. They were playing in-state rivals, Colorado State. So it was on really, really late, and it went into double overtime. They should have, they were predicted to win by 20 points, and they nearly lost, and they won at the last second. I did not stay up and watch the whole thing. And Deion Sanders said in an interview right after the ball game, he said, what is your takeaway? Do you, what do you take away with this very tight ball game that went into double overtime and you won barely? And, and he said, you've got to overcome adversity. And he said, that's my message. You've got to overcome adversity. The mantra in their locker room is you've got to believe. And Dion is a very strong believer and, and a strong Christian. Yet he said, you know, you've got to overcome adversity. Well, folks, that is a message for us today. We also must overcome adversity. We have an adversary. And in this world, we'll have adversity and trials and temptations. So how do we win in those temptations? So in chapter number 10, this is what the scripture says. It says, whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. And he gives us an example. And if you look in your Bible, and if you've got your Bible, look with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And first of all, he gives us an example. And going back to verse number one, the example he gives us is the children of Israel and how they dealt with temptation and adversity and the failure that happened with them and how their failure is a lesson for all of us. Notice in chapter 10, verse number one, it says, Now I don't want you to be unaware, ignorant brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, and they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed him, and that them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and they were struck down in the wilderness. The first thing that he says is in this example, he said they failed to this, they failed to celebrate God's grace. And this sets us up for failure in our lives spiritually when we don't celebrate in the grace of God. Notice that these, the, the Israel, notice how he compares Israel's exodus and our salvation. And he says, our ancestors were all, all of them were underneath the cloud, meaning all of them were brought by the hand of God out of Egypt and through the great exodus. And how the fire, the, remember there was a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day that led the children of Israel in the exodus and their wilderness journey. 
And notice not only that, they all passed through the sea. They were all experienced God's saving work, parting the Red Sea and taking them out and how he destroyed the Egyptian army. Notice how they all ate the same spiritual food. What was that? How God provided them manna out of heaven. And notice that they were all went through the baptism that Moses provided and the passing through the Red Sea. They were given spiritual drink to drink. All of them were. And it was from the source that God provided. And he says, and that rock is Jesus. There was a presence of Christ with them in the Old Testament. And yet God was not pleased with many of them. You see, we too, Christ is our spiritual life. Christ is the true manna that's come down out of heaven. Jesus says himself, I am the bread of life. Jesus stands in the temple complex on the great day of the feast and says, If any man is thirsty, let him come here and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is saying, I'm the life source. And yet he's saying to them, he's saying, he's reminding them, he said they experienced God's hand, God's salvation, God's works, God's wonders, God's provisions, God's presence. And yet they refused to rejoice and celebrate in the goodness and the grace of God. And it led to their downfall. And I find when Christians are defeated in their life spiritually is they've moved off of thinking about the goodness of God, the grace of God, the glory of God, the blood of Christ, the salvation that's ours, and the Spirit of God that's been given us, and that we've been made children of God. Amen. And instead, we focus on ourselves and what we don't have, or on the difficulties. God was not pleased with them. They refused to celebrate in His grace. And when you refuse to celebrate in the grace of God, then you began to look for something else, something more. Something that will really satisfy in your life. And so they moved to lusting after evil things. Notice in chapter number 10, it says, verse number 6. This took place as an example for us that we would not desire evil things as they did. The word desire there is to crave. They craved evil things. They craved and they hungered for and they longed for and they began to look for other things. Not good things, but evil things. Not godly things, but sinful things. And they began to crave it. In Numbers chapter 11, we're told in verse number 4 that the rabble, that means not, all, not, not, not only was it the children of Israel that came out of Egypt, but there were other people groups that came out with the children of Israel, and this is referred to in chapter number 11, and they're called the rabble. They're, they, they, they're, they're these other groups of people, and they had these greedy desires, and the greedy desires were also, it, it was caught also by the children of Israel, the sons of Israel, and, and they cried out, who gives us meat to eat? Where will we get the satisfaction that we long for? And from where will it come? Who will give it to us? You see, that's the temptation, isn't it? The temptation 
is that satisfaction, my satisfaction is not found in God and all that he provides for me, but my satisfaction will come from somewhere else. And we begin to look from, to somewhere or someone else to meet that satisfaction. But it never satisfies. It always lies to us. Proverbs 21.10 says, the soul of the wicked desires evil. That's that the hungers and after the things that were, are evil for us and to God. I love Proverbs. Listen to, what, listen to what Proverbs chapter 30 says, verse 15. The leech has two daughters. <laughs> and, this is, and, they, and the leech, these two daughters say, give, give. There are three things that will not be satisfied, that will not say enough. Sheol and the barren womb and earth that is never satisfied with water and fire that never says enough. That means the cravings and the longings, once you start looking for it somewhere else, you'll never, ever be satisfied. In the book of Habakkuk, it says, Behold, as for the proud one, the ego-inflated one, his soul is not right within him. There's no integrity within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man, and an arrogant man is never at rest. What does that mean? It means he's never satisfied. He never stays home. He's never content. He enlarges his appetite like Sheo, and like death, he's never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the people to himself. Verse number six says, Woe to him who amasses what is not his. How much longer? And he loads himself in goods taken in a pledge. He says he just gathers and gathers more and more and more, but he's never, ever satisfied. That's the way the lust of the flesh works. Paul said, that's the way you once were before you found Christ. Now listen, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived, according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler, the power of the air, the spirit now working in disobedient. And we are all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, our cravings, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and the thoughts and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. When you live in disobedience, when you live after, after your own cravings and desires, it has a downward dooming effect in your life. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of one's possessions, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world with its possessions is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Amen. Folks, I hope that this word's encouraging to you today. We are in a battle. We are in a battle in this world we are in a battle with the evil one, and yet Christ is with us, and he strengthens us. But when you move away from your allegiance to Jesus and you begin to look for it in other places, it brings destruction into your life. That downward spiral leads to the worship of other gods, and that's the next point in the outline if you're following along today. 
It says that it leads to the worship of other gods. We're told in the Old Testament that in the Decalogue and the Ten Commandments, we're not to have any other gods before the Lord. We're to worship in Him, Him only. We're not to make any image and bow down and worship that image. And you should not serve them, but you should. But God is a jealous God. He is a holy God. And this downward spiral, this seeking after craving and trying to find satisfaction and trying to find satisfaction in life and something else, it just leads you to when you're rejecting the Lord, rejecting the Creator, rejecting God Himself, and you go looking for it everywhere else, and it's just a downward spiral in your life. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 1. Notice with me in verse number 22. If you have your Bible, look with me to Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse number 22. And claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, reptiles. Worship the creation rather than the creator. Notice the downward spiral of idolatry. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts. Notice the cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity. Their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served what was created instead of the creator who's praised forever. Amen. This downward spiral is the, where we see our world today. Are you all with me this morning? Amen. Listen to me. This world is going to hell. Amen. And when we begin to live like the world, we'll be sinful and it will bring destruction into your life. And we need to learn the lesson from ancient Israel, not to compromise in our walk with God. Amen. When you begin to move the worship from God himself, and that worship is attached to other things, it leads to immorality in your life. Because the cravings are within you. Notice they committed sexual sin, the children of Israel did. It's the downward spiral. Some people think, well, sin's no, sex, sexual sin's not a big deal. It is a big deal. I want to be very honest with you. We live in a culture that wants to embrace every kind of sexual sin and say that it should be celebrated. It's a lie out of hell. Amen. The book of Ephesians, chapter number 5, beginning with verse number 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself a, for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. He says, walk in love, just like we sing about. Love God with all your heart. 
But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not be heard of among you as proper for saints, obscene and foolish talking or crude joking. It's not suitable, but rather giving thanks. You've got to walk with God, not this world, not your cravings. For no one recognized this. Listen to what he says. Every sexual, immoral, and impure, greedy person who's an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or of God. I didn't write this. Paul wrote this. And he wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Do y'all believe that? Amen. Notice with me to 1 Corinthians again. In chapter number 6, listen to what Paul has to say. 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. In verse number 9, And don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, males who have sex with males, nor thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like that. And we were. But you were washed. Isn't that great? And you were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Aren't you glad that God saves sinners like us? There's no place on our part to be arrogant and judgmental and hateful. We were all too broken. But God did a work of grace in us. God saved us. God washed us. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. He washed us clean from all of our unrighteousness, and he gave to us his righteousness. But we don't go back and live like the world. Now notice 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 18. Flee! He's talking to these believers. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. And don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Glorify God with your body. Now notice what he's saying about sexual sin. Sexual sin is different. Sexual sin is against your own body. It hurts you. Sexual sin is against the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God has been given to you. He dwells in your body. And sexual sin is against God, hurtful to you and hurtful to others. And then he says this statement, you are not your own. That is just opposite from what the message of this world is. It's my body. I'll do with it what I want. No. You've been bought with a price. 
glorify God with your body. Amen? In 2 Corinthians, chapter number 6. 2 Corinthians, chapter number 6. Beginning with verse number 14. Don't become partners with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? And what agreement does Christ have with Belial? And that, that's a demon. Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we're the temple of the living God. And God said, I will dwell and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. Amen. Fourthly, or fifthly, these children of Israel and their example to us is they complained and they grumbled all along the way. And we know when you get your eyes on yourself and what you don't have or do have, and when you begin to worship other things other than God himself, and when your heart is estranged from God and your walk with him. Now listen, before long you begin to, a spirit of grumbling gets in your heart. And that spirit of grumbling comes out of your mouth. I often read the Old Testament about the children of Israel and I think they indeed were Baptists these early. They complained and they grumbled. Their heart was not in submission to God or to Christ. Proverbs 19.3 says, A person's own foolishness leads him astray, yet his heart rages against the Lord. Grumbling is really raging, and often it's raging against God. Because you're not satisfied, you're not content, and you don't think God gives you what you need. And so you're angry, and you grumble, and you gripe, and you complain. Philippians says, do everything without grumbling or complaining. And the reason we grumble and we complain, stay with me, I'm going to meddle for a moment, is because we play this victim card within ourselves. I am a victim. And when as long as I'm a victim and life has happened to me and life has dealt me a bad deck of cards, bad, bad hand of cards, and, and I don't have what other people have, and my life's not, you know, then I become victims. And that's what Israel happened. Israel had been slaves for all those years. And now, every, at every turn, the water's not good enough. The water's this. The, the food's not this. We don't have meat. Back when we lived in Egypt, we had that. Why is God good to other people, not to us? And fools always become victims. It's a foolishness that gets inside of us. And as long as you're a victim, life's happening to me, you never have to change. You can always blame somebody else. And that's what victims do. 
They play their victim card all the time. But that's not who we are in Jesus Christ. Amen. We are not victims. We're victorious in him. In my very first pastorate, I had to deal with some people in our church who had this victim mentality. It's generational. Passed from generation to generation. Alcoholism and addictions and and all of them is the same mantra. I've been misunderstood. I've been injured. I can't help it. I can't stop it. And victims surround themselves with enablers. And then they become codependent together in the failure and the struggle of the victim. And churches and well-meaning people come alongside if we're not careful. And we coddle the hurt or the slight or the neglect or the injury, whether real or perceived, the disappointment. And we enable them to continue to live this defeated life. I'm telling you, all of that is out of hell. Because you have been born again. Your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. You are sons and daughters of the King. And you are not destined for failure, but you're destined for victory through Jesus Christ. And whatever hardship or difficulty a trial came into your life, or no matter what generational sin may have ruled in your family, you do not live that way because Christ has set you free. This is great news. And all of this has, you say, what's this got to do with temptation? It's got everything to do with it. Now notice the warning that he gives us. Not only the example from the past, but notice as Paul is speaking to them, the warning he gives them in verse number 12. He says, <clears throat> so whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. Self, do not trust in yourself. Self-reliance. And if you're trusting in your own strength, it will only bring failure in your life. You see, you're not as strong as you try to trick yourself to think you are. But your strength is found in him. In the book of Hebrews, it says in chapter 10, don't trust in yourself. It says, do not trust in or Hosea, I'm sorry, chapter 10. You have plowed wickedness and reaped in injustice. You've eaten the fruit of lies because you've trusted in your own way and in your large number of soldiers. You take pride in your own strength, but he says it's to your failure. Instead, we need not to trust in my strength, my ability, but trust in God. 
Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. His strength is what we need. Jesus said, I, I am the vine. You, you're the branches. And he that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. The fruit of the victorious Christian life, the fruit of love, it only happens when you're abiding in the vine. And that's Jesus. Wow. You see, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. And the righteous run into it. And they are safe. God, he is my refuge and my strength. And he's a very present help in time of trouble. He is with you. Finally, it brings us to the promise that he gives us. Notice that in verse number 13. It says, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to man, common to humanity. Now, here's the promise. Write it down big and strong. Number one, there's no temptation that's unique to you. Anybody here ever face some temptations in your life? You don't have to raise your hand. I know you do. No temptation is unique to you, meaning you're not alone in this battle. And whatever you're going through, others have faced the enemy and they have found victory. So you are not alone. When you play the victim card, no, nobody's ever suffered like this in their whole history of the universe. Well, stop it, would you? Nobody believes that. So quit selling that to yourself and others. Secondly, no temptation's too difficult for you. You say, well, I just can't help it. That is a lie out of hell. He says, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Does he tell the truth or not? You're not a victim. Yeah, but you don't know what I'm going through. I'm not going to say it. And I, I hear people say it. And you say it with your words. Stop saying it. Stop saying these words. Oh, I just can't. I just can't stop worrying. Well, number one, quit negatively confessing that. Some of you are worrying about your worrying. You're driving yourself crazy. That's why we're all med. Uh, we all, well, that's why we've got all these meds all the time for all of us. I can't stop. Drinking. I can't stop lusting. I can't stop gossiping. I can't stop lying. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Humble yourselves unto the Lord and he will exalt you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Cast all your cares on him. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, 
is prowling like a roaring lion, seeking anyone he can to devour, but resist him. Stand firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering that you've experienced is being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. You're not alone in this fight. God is with you. Thirdly, God is faithful to help you. God is faithful. You want, to know, you want a good scripture verse to help you with God is faithful? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. So that through two unchangeable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have a hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters into the sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he's a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He said, in the holy of holies, in the very presence of God, stands a high priest, and your name is written on his heart and on his shoulders. And he prays for you. If God be for us, who can be against us? And he provides, not only is he faithful, he provides a way of escape. He says he will provide a way of escape for you. In the book of Hebrews chapter 2 verse 18 it says, For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. To help those who are tempted. He aids you. He helps you. What a difference when you know that God is there to help us. Amen. Amen. He provides a way of escape for you. Whenever you're tempted, God's there with you to help you. Secondly, he strengthens you. Thirdly, he provides a way of escape. He understands you. He prays for you. The Holy Spirit's in you, strengthening you. He's with you. Isn't that awesome? Amen. Old Testament illustration of somebody who failed and somebody who didn't in temptation would be comparing David in his great failure and Joseph in his refusal to fail. David, you remember, didn't go out with the rest of the men of war. David, you know, walking along the top of the palace. David looks and sees a beautiful woman bathing, Bathsheba. David lusts after her. David inquires about her. David thinks about her. David lusts after her. David arranges a meeting with her. David does a secretive act with her. David has an affair with her. David then is in the process of covering it all up. And it brought failure and death into his life. Versus Joseph. Joseph, if anybody had a right to be treated like a victim, it's Joseph. Did Joseph's brothers love him? They hated him. Not only they hated him, they wanted to kill him. Not only did they want to kill him, they... They, they wanted, they didn't care about the father and how the father felt about him. And they sold him to a group of Ishmaelites and they took him to Egypt 
and they sold him to some other people. And then he finally ends up, Joseph does, in the hands of a commander, a captain of the armies, and a commander, an important man named Potiphar. He rises through the ranks. He becomes very successful. He's elevated. He's blessed. And, and yet he's estranged from his family. He's, he's in a foreign land, foreign language, all these difficulties. And he's in Potiphar's house and God is blessing him. And then all of a sudden temptation raises its ugly head. And Potiphar's wife gets a hankering for being with him. And she lusts after him, wants him, desires him, is very obvious about it to him, tries to arrange a secretive time for the two of them to be alone. And he said, I cannot sin. He didn't say, I can't sin by doing this evil against you, although I think he felt that. I can't sin and do this evil against your husband, because I think he felt that. He said, I can't sin and do this thing with you because it's evil in God's sight. He knew he lived for God. And he ran from her presence. Now, he was falsely accused, ended up thrown in prison. But in his heart, he had trusted God. I'm telling you, my friends, whatever temptation and trial you're going through, God will provide a way of escape. And God is victoriously working in you through that trial and through that circumstance. And what Satan means for bad, God can work for good because in that temptation on one hand, God says, let's watch how this trial unfolds. And he gives us the strength. And when we experience victory in that temptation, it strengthens us to become the men and women of God God has called us to be. Amen? The book of James, chapter number one, verse number two. Consider it a joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, because we know the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Even the temptation that Satan lays before you, God says, I'll use that to strengthen you. Isn't that good? In verse number 12, it says, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, oh, I'm being tempted by God. God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each one's tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. And after desires conceived, it gives, conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin has grown, it gives birth to death. That's what sin does. But God can take the trial and use it for your strength. You say, Pastor Tim, how do I live this victorious Christian life? The Bible says, the Bible says that if we'll walk according to the Spirit, we'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. Amen. I'm telling you, there's a warfare 
and it's your flesh and the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God has come to dwell in you. And when Christ is on the throne of your life, and when you love him, when you adore him, when you praise him, when you celebrate in his grace, when you think on the good things that God has done for you, when you fix your eyes on Jesus, and when you refuse the devil and resist him and humble yourselves under God's mighty hand and fix your eyes on Christ Jesus and fill your mind with good and godly things and not garbage and think on these things, and if you say, I'm going to walk in the Spirit, obey the voice of the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And folks, it begins with celebrating your new life in Christ. Amen. God is with us. God is for us. And God gives us the victory even in the most severe temptations of life. Hallelujah. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. It's true. It's powerful. It's corrective. It's life-changing. Father, I thank you for this great example, for this clear warning. And then your great promise and provision that you've given us. Help us to walk in obedience with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me, if you will.